Looks like the, the kids are all set. Just want to, um, before we begin here, a little bit encourage your small groups are meeting tonight. Uh, that will be at our home, and it will be at um, the Landman's home. That's right, way back there. So the aim of those groups are really to take the message I preached today and uh, work it over and uh, seek to apply it and press it into our lives. That's what we're about, right? We want to be doers of the Word, not hearers. That's some of the aim of that group. Also, this uh, Friday, couples only Valentine's Day banquet. See Adriana if you are interested in that. I we'll invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. In our exposition of 2 Peter, we've come to chapter 3, verse 10. And uh, we need to realize, as we start this morning, that that's a difficult place really to, to start uh, a message today. It's difficult because verse 10 is really the climax of last week's message. It is, it is the punch of everything we spoke about last week. Now, we did mention it briefly, didn't spend much time on it. So in order, in order to set the bearing in context, I want to spend a few moments just reviewing where Peter's been in 2 Peter chapter 3, and then I trust you'll see the climax of verse 10, and we'll just kind of rip it apart here is what our plan will be to do. Chapter 3 begins with Peter focusing our attention on what's most important for us to remember. He says the second letter he's writing and he said, in both these letters, I'm stirring up by way of reminder. He says, you need to remember my message in First Peter, which was just suffer now, glory later. Life today is difficult, but there's a glory later that's coming. And he's also writing the second letter to stir us up by way of reminder. Remember that, that we need to know Christ and we need to grow in Him. We need to be diligent in all our faith to pursue Him. In every way. He also said in verse 2 and 3 that we need to remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets. And also we need to remember the words of Christ. And then last week we looked at how we need to know and remember the, the second coming. And, and regarding that, there are three things we ought not to forget. Don't forget that mockers are coming. He says that in verse 3. Know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come. There will be people in the last days who will come and who will mock, and who will ridicule you for believing in the second coming of Christ. They will say, like verse 4 says, where is the promise of His coming? They will make the observation that things have remained the same since the foundation of the world, they think. They said, what has been is, and what is always will be. And since what has been always been the same, it's going to continue that way throughout all eternity. And therefore, where, where's the promise of a coming? He has not come back in any way. And Peter says, don't be surprised when they come. God's people have always been mocked in that way. They deal with the false teachers who say this, these mockers that say this. Peter told us not to forget in verses 5-7 through seven that all is not the same. Peter says, okay, let's pick up this argument of the false teachers who say that everything has been the same since the beginning since our fathers fell asleep. And that may be true going back to Abraham, but you push that a little bit further back. You go to Noah, who was before Abraham, and things changed in Noah's day. You push it back way to creation, and things changed in creation where there was nothing, and then there was something. Because God created out of nothing everything that we see. And it was changed. So God sent forth the rain of the flood. He changed the landscape of, of our earth. And surely just as much as God created the world at the beginning of time, and just as much as He destroyed the world at the time of Noah and his flood, so also He will come and destroy the world with fire. Listen, all is not 
the same. And then Peter says, don't forget that God is patient. Verses 8 through 9. These verses speak of the character of God. God is far more patient than any of us can ever even begin to imagine. A thousand years in God's sight are like a, a day in ours. He's delayed His second coming just a few days. You say, why is the second coming of Christ delayed? Because of the character of God. He's patient. He's waiting. What's He waiting for? He's waiting for people to come to repentance. That's what He's waiting for. It says that right there in verse 9. He even delays cosmic destruction so as to wait for people to turn from their sins. Listen to this. Do you know why Christ didn't return today? Because there are more people to be saved. That's why Christ didn't return today. God's waiting to bring more into His kingdom before He brings an end to the world. But there will be an end. There is an end to God's patience. And that's the point of verse 10. But, strong contrast here, though He's waiting, there will be a day when His patience ends where He will destroy the world. But the day of the Lord will come. It will come. And though the mockers might be saying, well, it's, everything's been the same, we need to take it by faith that God says, well, there's going to be a day in the future where things will change. He will come. The day of the Lord will come. Mockers may mock all they like. They may claim that Christ is coming. It doesn't matter. The day of the Lord will come. It may seem that things in life have always been the way they are today. People may think that. People may think it may continue forever. But know this, on the authority of God's Word, the day of the Lord will come. God's patience may seem to last forever. I mean, after all, He's waiting 2,000 years. What's a, another couple, 10, 15,000? And, and maybe it will be. But, listen, the day of the Lord will come despite how long it, it takes. There's going to be a day when it all ends. And that's the point here, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come. It's the title of my message this morning. The day of the Lord will come. Now, before we actually really dig into our, our text this morning, it would be helpful for us to spend a few moments just thinking about the day of the Lord. The phrase day of the Lord is a, is a common one in the Old Testament and so much so that it's practically a, a technical term that um, really is used to describe God's intervention in history for judgment. You read in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, it's coming a judgment is what's there. It's a day when He's going to judge the wicked of the world. I mean, just listen to a few verses talked about in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, prophecies against Babylon. Isaiah writes, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is coming. It is a day of destruction, judgment. A few verses later, Isaiah says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and with fury and burning anger to make a land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. God's coming to judge and destroy. In Ezekiel 30, we get the same feel. This time it's prophecy against Egypt rather than Babylon. Ezekiel writes, Thus says the Lord, Alas, wail for the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a time of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. There it's even beyond Egypt. Right, A sword will come upon Egypt and anguish will be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt and they take away her wealth and her foundations are torn down. The day of the Lord isn't always just against those wicked nations out there. No, the day of the Lord even comes against Israel and Zion who fail to walk in the days of God. 
Joel speaks about that to the unrepentant people of God. He says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of a land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it's near. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The day of the Lord, in many ways, is not a day we look forward to and smile. It is a day, though, that will come. And the point is, the day of the Lord is a day in which judgment will come upon the unrepentant, those who have not turned from their sin, those who have not embraced Christ and trusted Him completely. That's Peter's point. And, and particularly here, it's talking primarily about how the judgment is going to come upon these mockers who are saying, where's the promise of His coming? Well, you all just wait. His coming is going to come and you're going to have to deal with Him then. That God judges the wicked is sure. In fact, we saw back in 2 Peter chapter 2. You can turn back there and look if you want. Check in Peter chapter 2, verse 4. There was a day when God didn't spare the sinning angels, but He judged them and cast them into hell, reserved for judgment. And as verse 5 says, there was a day when God judged the ancient world by pouring out a flood upon the ungodly. And as verse 6 says, there was a day when the city of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. His delay today <coughs> is only His patience. Listen, but there will be a day when God comes. And He will come and judge those who are mocking His return. It's a day of the Lord. That's what we're talking about today. My message this morning has three points. They come in the form of questions. Just questions to help bring out what Peter's talking about. First question here is verse 10. How will it come? How will the day of the Lord come? Verse 10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, <coughs> Excuse me. and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 10 describes what the day of the Lord will be like. It would be good to mention at this point that Peter isn't putting together for us a detailed explanation of everything that's going to take place when Jesus comes back. Peter is scant in his details. Verse 10 about gives us all the details there are. There's no mention of the rapture, the gathering together of his saints. There's no mention of any signs that might precede this day. Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. There's no mention about how, how long the day of the Lord will be. Commentators disagree about how long it will be. How long the judgment of God is poured out upon the earth. There's no mention of the tribulation which will come during, before this time. There's no mention of the millennium. Peter just gives a few details only about that day. But here's the point that we need to know. Is that the few details were sufficient for them in Peter's day to get at Peter's point. And the few details are sufficient for us today to get at Peter's point. Because Peter's point here is ethical. His point here is like in verse 11. Since these things will be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because the world will be destroyed, how are you going to live? It says in verse 14, Therefore, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. In other words, since you're looking for the day of the Lord, since you're looking for the destruction, since you're looking for the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless. See, Peter's aim isn't to teach us a systematic theology on the return of Christ, 
Rather, he's teaching us to think of his return in, in, in just the broadest details of what it means he's coming back and live appropriately. Verse 10 does tell us, though, two characteristics of his return. How is it that he will come? How is it the day of the Lord will come? We see there in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is, it will come quickly. It will come suddenly. It will come unexpectedly. A thief doesn't come when you're expecting him to come, does he? Someone looking to steal something might easily be thwarted by the eye that looks and sees and notices something's wrong. The thief comes by stealth of night, unexpectedly. And Peter isn't the only one who used this picture about the day of the Lord coming. Several times in the New Testament, the coming of Christ is described as the coming of a thief. Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman and child, and they will not escape. Picture here is peace, safety, prosperity, we're doing okay, and the, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. They're going to be surprised. Twice in Revelation, this imagery is used. The church in Sardis was, called, was told, if you do not wake up, this dead church, I will come like a thief, and you will not know which hour I come to you. And I think there are the ideas. They're, they're sleeping and slumbering, just thinking everything's just okay, and they're not alert. And when he comes, it's going to be like a thief upon them, because he's going to catch them unexpected. He's going to catch them um, suddenly, quickly. <clears throat> they're not going to be ready. The reason why this imagery is used in the New Testament is because Jesus started it. Jesus said it in Matthew 24. He said, Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know the day in which your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Jesus used this imagery of the thief in the night and He said some counsel. Be ready. He says, you know it's going to come as a thief? Imagine, if you knew tonight that a thief was going to come and rob your home this evening, what would you do? I think you'd be ready. Okay, Johnny's going to take out his shotgun. This <laughs> is what that looks like. Um, you'd be ready. You'll lock your doors. Are you going to sleep? You're not going to sleep. You're going to stay up. You're going to be sober. You're going to be alert. You're going to be watchful. Okay, the thief is coming tonight. I want to scare him off. Maybe we'll borrow the Weeby's dog. His name again, I always forget. Digger. Digger, the, the, the rambunctious dog. That just, arr, 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 arr. Get him out. We'll do whatever we could do to be ready for the thief. And that's Jesus' point. That's Peter's point. We need to be ready. The mockers weren't ready. They're mocking the return of Christ. They don't think it's going to happen, so they're not ready. They leave the doors unlocked. They leave the windows unlocked and open. They sleep well, and the thief comes and steals from them. They're plundered suddenly. Have you ever been a victim of theft before? How many of you? It happens quickly. It happens when you're not prepared. I remember when I was a junior in college, I had a, a car at school, and uh, the car wasn't a, a nice car. I, I don't know what kind it was. I, I looked for a picture of it. I wanted to put in the children's notes so maybe some of you could tell me what kind of car it was. I think it was a Chevrolet Oldsmobile of some type. It was this ugly blue color and was an ugly shape. And in fact, those in our, it, was, it was my grandmother's old car. And when she could drive no longer, I kind of inherited it in college. I was glad to do it. It's probably a good college car. You know, it wasn't a souped-up deal. In fact, we affectionately call it in our family the Graham-mobile. 
as we call it, like grandma's car. This car was of little value and was so ugly, I figured that it was immune to theft, is what I figured, and so I never locked the car. Had no problems for most of the year, and then I remember one night, I can tell you where I was. I could take you to that very spot. I received a call from security. He called me up. Is this Steve Brandon? Yeah. Is, Do you have a car here and this license plate? And they told me the license plate number. I said yes, and they told me of how a security guard happened to be patrolling the, the parking lot where my car was, and and as he was walking down the parking, they startled some guys and they took off and they ran. And so he investigated and what took place and he inspected my car and noticed that my radio had been stolen and that my back seat had like been pried open trying to get at the speakers in back through the, uh, through the seat. And they did some damage to the back seat and there were some you know, things disrupted. So they took the, the radio and just kind of pulled it out of there. That radio is probably worth more than the car. And uh, they pulled that out of there. And, and I had no clue that someone would try to steal the radio out of my car. I just had no clue. But listen, I went through that experience 20 years ago. And to this day, I lock my car wherever I go. I just do. Because I have a, a second chance. I'm ready now for the thief to come. That's Peter's point. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. We need to be ready for it. Unfortunately for me, with a car, it's little. I mean, they can uh, steal things in the car. I've got another chance. I've got other cars. But that, listen, that's not the case for the second coming of Christ. We get one shot at this thing. It's not like we can see the, the return of Christ and say, oh, that was, that was pretty bad. I'm going to repent next time. It's not how it works with the return of Christ. There's no second chances on this one. We don't have the luxury of experiencing the first one to see how bad it is and then try a do-over. No, we need to learn by faith. We need to be ready now for His coming. Sadly, there are many who are not ready. When Jesus told of His return to the earth, He often told about those who were not ready. Just consider the following verses. Matthew 24, verse 37. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Nobody was ready for the flood to come. Though Noah was preaching it to them and telling them that for 120 years, though this big boat was there testifying to them, the judgment's coming, they weren't. It says, Matt, Jesus said, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. No one thought that it would all end. Those in Noah's day believed that life would go on like the mockers of Peter's day. Like the mockers of our day. It's just going to go on. It's just going to go on. They weren't prepared for the flood that came upon them. And that's an illustration that Jesus used of how people weren't ready. And Jesus told of the evil slave who said in his heart, Matthew 24, 48, My master is not coming for a long time. And so he beat his fellow slaves and ate and drank with the drunkards. And then the master returned in a time which he was not expecting it. And he was then cast out of the house and assigned a place to the hypocrites. He wasn't ready. Or Matthew 25 tells a parable of the ten virgins. Five of them wise and prepared their lamps. Five of them foolish with no oil in them. They came out and the oil of the foolish virgins ran out and uh, they went to go buy some more. And at that moment, the bridegroom came back, locked the doors, and then when they came back from the market, being unready, not ready when the bridegroom came back, they pounded on the door and wanted to get in and said, Lord, open for us. And they were not allowed into the feast. And this is Peter's point of comparing the return of Christ with the thief. Peter's warning us to be ready for the return of Christ. We need to be ready. There's no chance 
No second chance for those who aren't ready. You say, how can I be ready? <laughs> Glad you asked. Just believe on Christ. Right? Believe in His promises. Believe that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to turn God's wrath away from you because He turned it upon Him. Believe that, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross then cleanse your sin by taking His righteousness and placing it upon you. Believe that in Him and only in Him are you pure and blameless in God's sight. Believe, as 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Just believe and trust that Christ is sufficient for anything I need. That's complete trust upon God, right? The Proverbs say, right? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. That's what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 1.3. Trust Him for everything He's sufficient. That's how you escape the wrath. That's how you're ready. Believe His promises. In verse 4, He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. He's promised us to keep us and protect us and to guard us and to guide us. You want to be ready for that day? Trust in Jesus. It's the only message we got. It's the only hope we have. Trust in Jesus. Well, how's the day of the Lord going to come? It's going to come, first of all, like a thief. Secondly, it's going to come with massive destruction. He said, in that day in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Massive destruction. It's not that the thief is going to come in and steal a bit of your goods and then leave. No, the thief is going to come in, plunder everything he wants, take everything that he wants, then douses your home with hundreds of gallons of gasoline, sets your home on fire, so it just goes up in flames and quickly reduces nothing but ashes. That's what the day of the Lord is like. That's what it says. Total wipeout. When the Lord gets through, there's going to be nothing left. That's the idea here, in which the heavens, it says, will pass away with a roar. He's talking here about everything in the sky, the atmosphere and beyond, the stars, everything, just with a roar, just a whoosh. I mean, picture hurricane that comes and just devastates everything in its path. Or a lava flow from a, from a mountain which comes down and takes everything away. That's what we're talking about here. With one shout, the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll and all the heavens will... Scatter like a scared kitty cat. The elements are destroyed with intense heat. It's impossible for us to know exactly what the elements are. Some just say the sun, moon, stars. It could be deeper than that. But whatever it means, it means it's the most foundational building blocks of our universe. Everything that makes up our earth and sky are gone. If you see it now, it's gone later. If you see it now, it's gone later. The earth and its works are burned up. So he says right there at the end of verse 10, the earth will be a giant fireball. It will burn and burn and burn until it's gone. See, when you, you think of the day of the Lord, you might, you might think of it like, like, like this. Right? Here's a wadded up paper that you just kind of take and you... That's not quite it, is it? This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. Not that on the ground there. This is the day of the Lord. I just hope the uh, alarm systems don't go off here. <laughs> it's all gone. 
we'll just we'll just set up crew. You can deal with that later. So <laughs> that's the day of the Lord. Paper catches fire up in a blaze of light. Only after it's burned, charred remnants remain. The earth and its works will be burned up. Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced that, that everything we see here is, is gone someday? Or are you living like it's going to be here forever? Maybe you are hoping in and trusting in and loving in the things of the world. Listen, as First as John 2.17 says, the world is passing away. It's just passing away. Peter told us to seek the world to come. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he described our inheritance, which is so much better than the earth we have here. It says, This inheritance we have by faith in Christ, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. The world fades away, but not our inheritance in heaven. Well, how's it going to come? It's going to come like a thief. It's going to come in destruction. My second question, verses 11 and 12, how ought we to live? How ought we to live? Verses 11 and 12, we see this. <clears throat> and Peter brings in here the ethical exhortation about where everything's headed. This is why he brings up the day of the Lord. It's so as to, to, to resolve our mind with the mockers. God will have His day with them, but also to think about ourselves and where is it that we are living, how is it that we are living, has practical implications. It's not just eschatology for eschatology's sake. This is what's going to happen so that we live rightly. Peter writes, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, this is all going to burn up, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening, I love that, hastening the day of God, <clears throat> the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Since the heavens will be destroyed since the elements will be destroyed, since the earth will be destroyed, we ought to be holy, righteous, and God-fearing people in this present age. It's Peter's message. And the principle here is that Peter shares this knowledge of the future affects how you live today. You know the truth and you will then grow in Him. I mean, if you truly grasp everything I'm saying today, you will have a heart that just wants to pursue God Avoid the destruction that's coming. Delight in the promise of the new heaven and new earth and grow in Him and grow in the knowledge. I mean, that's, I mean, that's Second Peter. It is right here, plain and all to see. But knowledge of the future affects how you live today. It happens on a small scale. If you're planning on attending one of our small groups tonight, our flocks tonight, what are you going to do? You're going to be paying attention because you know that tonight we're going to be talking about these things. And uh, you might be called upon. So what do you think about the message today? I really wasn't listening. I was kind of just drawing this picture. No, you're going to say, well, here, here's what I think because here's what I remember. You are going to pay attention now because you know it's going to take place. Knowledge of the future affects how it is you live today. You'll be alert. Or tomorrow. If you've got a particularly early day tomorrow morning at work, you're going to make sure you get in bed early enough tonight so you get sleep tomorrow. That's how it works. And it works on the large scale too, not just from day to day, but from... Year to year, think of yourself towards the end of your high school years. You're thinking about the future and what it is that you're going to do. Are you going to pursue further training? You're going to pursue college or trade school, or, or, or what are you going to do? And and those who know truly the importance of their training when they're young will 
be affected of how hard they study today. If you know, hey, I need this training so as to pursue this job that I really want, that's where I want to be, then you will study hard today. And, and my guess is this, is that in the vast majority of cases where students are receiving poor grades, my guess is it's the very same students who don't know the future. It's, it's the people who are living for today. They're not living and understanding what's going to take place in the future if they slack in their studies today. But, oh, if they'd know that, they would study much harder and their grades would go up because your knowledge of the future affects what you live for and act today. And, and, and knowledge that happened just in years, it happens on the largest of scales. It happens for all eternity. Listen, our lives are in the balance with eternity. Peter says this, despite what others are saying, the day of the Lord will come. And on that day, everything will be destroyed. And since you know that everything is going to be destroyed on that day, it ought to make a difference in your life. And your pursuit ought to be in the direction towards holiness and godliness. That's what he's saying. Now, it might be, not be obvious here how it is that the destruction of the world should pursue us on to holiness. I mean, you think about it. The destruction of the world, in one very big sense, ought to lead us to live a, a life of indulging the flesh. It, it, it could very well lead us to the exact opposite of what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying the world is going to be destroyed, so live holy lives. But you could say, well, the world is going to be destroyed, so why live for then? Why not live for now? What's the use of living righteously if it's all going to be destroyed anyway? I mean, there were some in Isaiah's day who reasoned that way. Isaiah said, therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, to wearing sackcloth. Instead, rather than repenting, there's gaiety and gladness. Killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. And they say, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Death was on the horizon, and so those in Isaiah's day lived it up. Paul reasoned this way. He said, 1 Corinthians 15 32, If the dead are not raised, listen, if the dead are not raised, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, and, and Paul is all serious about this. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the conclusion. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, if you don't believe that, you might as well eat and drink, tomorrow you're going to die. There's no hope. Because if He didn't raise, He's not coming again. And apart from that first line, it makes total sense if Christ has not been raised. Listen, if we were mere man animals, created to be captured and killed as food supplies for other species of beings, with no afterlife, this reasoning makes total sense. If Christ is not coming, we might as well follow after our own lusts as these mockers were doing in verse 3. They're saying, where's the promise of His coming? Right, they're saying that because they're following after their own lusts. There's no promise of His coming, therefore I can pursue whatever I want. But all those ifs are, are not true. The dead are raised. And Christ is coming back. And we need to live our lives differently because it's not merely the destruction of the world, it's also the return of Christ to judge the world and we need to live our lives differently. It all has to do with the fact that when Christ returns, it's a day of judgment. But it also has to do with this. That when Christ comes back, it's not only a day of judgment, but it's also a day of rescue. 
And here we're seeing, we're seeing good news come out of here. Because cause when Christ comes back, yes, He's going to judge the wicked, but He's going to reward the righteous who are righteous in Him. We saw that back in chapter 2. The day of the flood was a terrible day. But was it a terrible day for Noah? He lost some friends, certainly, and there's a lot of perish, a lot of work to be done in days ahead. But it was a day of salvation for him and his family. They were tucked away safely in the ark. The day of the flood wasn't such a bad day for Noah. He lived because God saved him and protected him. What about the day that God rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that a terrible day for Lot? Well, yes, he lost his wife. There are people in the city he knew who were lost and destroyed. But for him, as the angels dragged him out of the city before the destruction came, he was saved in that day. And so it is with believers of Christ. For those of us who have placed our hope in Christ, found Him sufficient in all things, His return doesn't return as judgment. <clears throat> Rather, His return comes as, as salvation as we're wrapped up in the hands of God and nothing can take us away from His love. In fact, Paul said in Romans 8.38, Neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that includes the day of the Lord. We are kept secure in the hands of God and the key verse back in chapter 2, when he's talking about the ancient world that perished and the sinning angels that perished and Noah who was preserved and Sodom and Gomorrah who was perished, but Lot was preserved, his main point comes down in chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to rescue the righteous and God knows how to destroy the guilty. The day of judgment is the day of the Lord that will come. See, and if the Lord is going to come in the future and save all those who believe in Christ, then we need to prepare ourselves by being diligent in our faith to be found in Him, right? And we walk then in our diligence of believing and trusting in Him, walk in a way, as verse 11 says, in holy conduct and godliness. This is just a, a sign of a, a righteous life that we saw back in chapter 1. Verses seven through nine about the, the increasing five through seven rather, just the increasing pursuit of God, increasing pursuit of holiness in Him. And the day of the Lord is a day that we ought to anticipate. I love this. Look at verse twelve. We looking for this day. We are hastening this day. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And on that day, right, the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. It's a day we ought to look towards with eager anticipation. We ought to it says, hasten the day. You say, what does that mean? The NIV is good here. It says that we ought to speed its coming. Simplifying it a little bit. We ought to speed the day's coming. Can we actually speed the coming of the day of the Lord? Can we? In one measure, no. The day is fixed. Isaiah 46, verse 10. God has declared the end from the beginning. He's declared it all, sovereign over time. There's a day and an hour which the Father knows, though the Son doesn't, though the angels doesn't. He's established that day. He just simply hasn't made it known. So, in one sense, no, that day is established, it's fixed, but we don't know when that day is. But Peter says we can speed its coming. So how can you speed its coming? There, there are two ways you can speed its coming. One is by praying the Lord's Prayer. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. What are we praying? Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. He, he taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come. I think the, way he, the reason why He taught us to pray that way is because prayers work. God comes through our prayers, calling out to Him, pleading that His kingdom would come. second way to hasten the kingdom of God is come is to evangelize the lost. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus spoke of how crucial world evangelism is to the end of time. He said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel is going to go out to the whole world, then the end will come. And so listen, as you labor to talk with your neighbors, to talk with your families, to share with your children about the gospel of Christ. We can, at least from some perspective, as we increase that and we do that more, we can hasten the day. We can speed it along from our perspective. What more pertinent to us this morning is rather than speeding it come, do you want the day to come sooner? Do you want to speed up that day? Can you say with John, come Lord Jesus. I want that day to come. Are there things in life that just life is easy for you right now? Are you retired and everything's okay? Is home comfortable for you? Is your vacation spot too sweet? Is, is your life apart from Christ too fulfilling that you don't want Him to come? He said, I'm living pretty sweet now. And in fact, if I think about it, this world, heaven, I don't know much about heaven, but I know a lot about this world, and I like this world. Ah, so if that's your perspective, you've got to change it. Because it's not right. First John 2. John told us, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, For all that's in the world, the lust, the flesh, the boastful pride of life. I missed one there. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And that's the context where he says, The world is passing away and also its lusts. See, but the one who does the word of, will of God abides forever. Maybe you need some time reflecting upon your own life. Maybe you don't have a longing for the day of the Lord to come because you're so satisfied here. And, and, and you like your life here. You're not looking for the life to come. Perhaps you aren't thinking much about the then and there. Thinking about the then and there will change us. Right? As even John said over after... Chapter 2, he said in chapter 3, it says that when he appears, we'll be like him, and everyone has his hope fixed on him, purifies himself as he is pure. And that's what Peter's getting at here in chapter 3. He says, since these things will be destroyed, since the judgment is coming, we look for and hasten that day, and we ought to be, as we hasten that day, people in holy conduct and godliness. Well, if you say today, you know what, I, I, I'm, really, I'm really not longing for that day. I say, well, verse 13 ought to give you help to long for that day because verse 13 will, will paint things beautifully and nicely about what that day is, is about and maybe put some longing in your heart. How will the day of the Lord come? Verse 10, unexpectedly and with destruction. How ought we to live in holy conduct and godliness? Third question, what should be our hope? What should be our hope? Simple answer to this question is the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 13 but according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
as we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, it's not so much, catch this, it's not so much that we desire and delight in the destruction of everything here and now. Oh, it is that we're looking for that, verse 12 says that. We look for the day of God. We hasten the day of God because of which everything will be destroyed. But, but primarily the thing that causes us to look for that day is because what that day symbolizes, it goes beyond it. Once He destroys the heavens and the earth, beyond that He will create a new heavens and a new earth. See, we look for what comes after the destruction. The new heavens and the new earth are what comes later. And they are our hope. God has promised, right here, verse 13, according to His promise, God has promised to come and create a new heavens and a new earth. And, says verse 9, He's not slow about that promise. His promise to return, His promise to set up all that. He's not slow about it. It's in His perfect time that's taken place. They may say, verse 4, where's the promise of His coming? God's promise will come. He's just a bit slower than we think He ought to be. But He's right on time. Chapter 1, verse 4, we have precious and magnificent promises. Speaks not only of this present life, but also speaks of the life to come. And particularly in this context, the promises of a new heaven and a new earth. And this promise didn't originate with Peter. Near the end of Isaiah's prophecy, he used this phrase, the new heavens and the new earth twice. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 66, verse 22. Let me read the former. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And in the next verse, listen to what he says. He says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. In other words, anticipating the future is reason for joy and happiness. So we think about the new heavens and the new earth, it ought to flood our minds with joy and anticipation. That's why we hasten the coming. That's why we're eager to look for it because it's going to be a better place than this is. Amen? Let's try that again. It's going to be a better place than this is. Amen? Amen. Amen. John picked up on the imagery used in Isaiah. spoke about Revelation. spoke about the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21. Think about these. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death, and there will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. That is great hope. That is great joy. can't cry in heaven. All gone. There are three places in this life. One place where there are nothing but tears. It's a place of hell. A place where there are some tears. It's here. And a place where there are no tears in heaven. And we ought to look for and long for that. No more death, no more tears, no more pain. And we think of the day of the Lord, that's what we should think of. We should think of what comes after it. We should think of God's promise of the new heavens and the new earth, right? And it should bring great joy and anticipation into our hearts. Isn't there, isn't there an anticipation you have of something in the future you really want to go to? Whether it's a rodeo at the Metro Center, right? Or some vacation you're looking forward to. A, a place where you really want to be is going to be a place where you're really longing for. And we ought to set our hearts and affections upon heaven. 
Though we know that the destruction comes first and then the new heavens and the new earth come. And you can see that in the contrast here in verse 12. Verse 12 talks about what's going to be destroyed. That comes first. Verse 13 talks about what's going to be rebuilt. As we anticipate the day of the Lord, we, we aren't anticipating the judgment. Now, there, there are some who anticipate the judgment and to them, the day of the Lord is a terrible day. But as we know, we've been forgiven, washed clean in Christ. We can see the day of the Lord and say, I know it's coming next. I know it's coming next. And in that I rejoice. In fact, in the teaching of Christ, you see these different separations. Some are going to be destroyed in that day. Some will be saved in that day. When Christ comes back, He's going to separate between all of mankind. Some will be here. Some will be here. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. The final day, He's going to put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. They sat down and gathered good fish into the containers. The bad they threw away. Matthew 13, 48. And listen, the two fates of the different people have every reason to see how they respond differently. Some look eagerly to that day. Others dread the day. And it all has to do with what you receive. Doesn't it? If you're going to receive joy and happiness in the new heaven and earth, that's a day to look forward to. If you're going to receive judgment and condemnation because of your sins, that's not a day to look forward to. That's a day of dread. A good illustration of this was yesterday. My wife turned 40 yesterday. So, Vaughn, you're 40 in one day today. For some, milestone birthdays like that are a very discouraging time. In fact, uh, I know of one person who when she turned 40 experienced some mild depression just about, I'm getting older. You know, and, and for you that might hit, whatever, 50 or 60, or might, might hit. These, this is like a, a doom that, that's coming upon us. We grow older and older and older. But Yvonne is something else to look forward to on her 40th birthday. It wasn't a day of gloom. It's a day she's looking forward to because I told her. I'd made a promise to her. I just said, Yvonne, 40th birthday's coming up. I said, I got something planned for you. That's all I said. Kind of kept her in the dark. Put a few hints there, but I, I kept it pretty much in the dark. And so she looked forward to that day with eager anticipation. She knew the judgment was coming at 40 years old, but she knew that, that there was something good there. And so she looked to that birthday with joy. And maybe to spur you husbands on, maybe I'll tell you what I did. Maybe you can love your wives. I arranged for her a seven-course meal. But the seven courses were at seven different homes of seven different families of people we love. We start off 2 o'clock way down south at the Guskies house. They served us some appetizers. At 3 o'clock, we were at another home. At 4 o'clock, we were at another home. We had, appet- we had two appetizers, and then we had another home for soup, and then we had another home for salad, then we had another home for dinner, and then by 7 o'clock, we were dessert, and by 8 o'clock, we had after-dinner tea at different homes throughout Rockford. We ended up way up north at the Reed's house. Started south, spent our time here in the city, and then went way up, way up north and spent a good day yesterday doing that from 1.30 until we got back 9.30 last night, something like that. At each, shop, at each stop, I had a note for her telling her how much I love her, telling her something about what I appreciate about her, and then kind of gave her a gift that was symbolic about that. It was a great time. Why did I do that? Tell her so she doesn't become depressed at age 40, I guess, huh? <laughs> No, I wanted to show her I loved her, wanted to give her 40 birth, 
40th birthday is a time of joy for her to look back onto. I want her to be able to anticipate this day with joy. It's just an expression of love from me. She will look back on this day, I'm sure, the 40th birthday, which I'm telling you, someone said, oh, I didn't know you were such the romantic. And I said, you know what? I'm not. That's what makes this thing so huge (laughs) is that I'm not. But she'll look back on that day with happiness and joy. And when we are in heaven, we will, we will look back upon everything that we've got in heaven. and just that day, We will live forever on our 40th birthday with our spouse taking us out, showing us how special they are. God says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Listen, the, the joys of heaven will far exceed any joy you've ever experienced here on earth. Pleasures forevermore. Pleasures here on earth always stop at some point. But pleasures in heaven continue forever. They just keep going. But we're not there yet, right? We are here waiting for that day. I want you to think back now to a couple days ago with Yvonne. Her 40th birthday is on the horizon. She didn't have any clue what would happen to her on that day, but she was excited about it. She was looking forward to it. Because I made some promises. She didn't know what that promises were. I think it exceeded your expectations. Okay, it did. Okay, good. <laughs> That's what I tried to do. And the glories of that day crowd out all depression that may come from a 40th birthday. Listen, but we are in the same boat regarding eternity. All for us is in the future. We don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, you read Revelation 21 and it's, it's, everything is it's, it's like this. It's like this. It's It's... He can't even explain it because it's just sort of like that. It's going to be far better than what we think. And I promise you, it will far exceed all of your expectations of heaven. And such an outlook, listen, will help you to look for and long that for that day, even if it's linked with great destruction, even if it's linked with a 40th birthday, even if it's linked to a milestone that you're not real excited about even if it's linked with the the day of the Lord when things are are crushed. We go beyond that, and for us, it gives us great joy. Listen, and it all depends upon what you're going to receive. For us who believe in Christ, we have the promise of new heaven and new earth. And like all promises in the Bible, it's not because we've earned anything in any way whatsoever. Rather, it's because God has been gracious to us in His kindness to be merciful towards us and given us Christ we simply trusted in Him and seen our sins wiped away, turned, seen the, the wrath averted and seen the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And we believe that and understand that. It shows in the way we live. In fact, that's what verse 14 says. Next week we'll look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. A good parallel to this. First Peter, why don't you turn over there? First Peter chapter one, verses thirteen to sixteen. The same thing Peter taught in this epistle. I thought this would be a great place to end. First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Right? He's saying, Think rightly about things and things to come. He says, Be sober in spirit. Right? Don't be intoxicated in your spirit. Think rightly about what is true. And here he says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, think completely on what's going to be brought to you. Say, so what's going to be brought to you? Well, he talked about that inheritance in chapter 1, verse 4. We already talked about that. 
We're going to receive this inheritance, which is far better than we think. It is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And as you, as you put your mind there, when Christ is revealed, when He comes back, what's going to flow from that? Verse 14, our lives are going to be holy and righteous as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And again, you see the same thing, right? Our hope is upon the things to come, and our lives then delight to follow in the ways of God trusting in Him in every way. In ourselves, we don't have the power to do that. But as the message of 2 Peter says, He's given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Because God's given us everything we need in life and godliness, we can live in holy conduct and godliness. Well, I hope you long for this day. Tomorrow, next week, we will we'll address this again a little bit. We're looking for these things. We'll be diligent to be found by Him, spotless and blameless. Let me pray for all of us that we would stand firm in His grace. Lord, You know how I've tried. I've tried hard (coughs) to paint for for these people here. The people I love. Tried to paint for them the glories of heaven. I would pray that you would, would so help us to, to see that the day of destruction is also a day of hope. The day when everything's burned is also a day when you start creating a new and a fresh. And that day in heaven is going to be a day of rejoicing as we sung earlier. And I would pray, Lord, that you would help us all to be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day, knowing that just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. So help us this day, Lord, to so live in light of the future coming. We love you and trust you with these things. Do a work in our hearts that we would be more and more heavenly minded, that we would be more and more earthly good. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.